0: Welcome to the Cloud Pod where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP and Azure. We are your hosts,
1: Justin, Jonathan, Ryan and Peter. Episode 184 recorded for the week of September 28th, 2022. The Cloud Pod explicitly trusts itself. Good evening, Ryan, Peter and Jonathan. Hey buddy, full house. Yeah. yeah. Hey. We uh, we got Ryan out from underneath that tree, so he's mm-hmm. he's good back in the studio. Uh, so you know, for those of you who had to listen to the wind last time, it was—it's uh, all better now. It's all better. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, a couple of things here. Google Next is two weeks away, uh, and uh, I'm going to tell you now that there's a plan. while I'm gone next week, that they're going to record a show without me. And for those who've been a long-term listener, you know that there's a twenty percent chance that show happens. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and so we'll see We'll see if that happens or not. But uh, we are for sure taking the week of Google Next off. Uh, we all have other obligations that week, and Google Next is going to be a full, packed week of show notes. And so we'll be back right after Google Next. Uh, we'll record a show early in the week, and then we'll get a show out uh, later that week. But next week you should have a Justin-less show, which will be the third time that's happened, uh, if they make a recording. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, you know the week after that it won't be a show. And then we'll be back to talk about Google Next. And so just keep that in mind if you're listening on the audio feed. We are just taking a quick break because uh, we deserve a vacation because we're working really hard for the show. Yes. <laughs> All right, well, let's get into uh, news this week once again. AWS Fleetwise IoT has uh, gone general available. This is a new service that makes it easier for automotive companies to collect, transform, and transfer vehicle data to the cloud in near real time. I have a quote here from Mike uh, something. I can't pronounce the last name. I'm going to try, general manager of IoT automotive at AWS. Uh, Automotive companies want to use the broad portfolio of AWS services to help manage the vast amounts of data coming from connected vehicles, but they have lacked a solution that made it easier to collect, transform, and transform data to the cloud. Now with AWS IoT FleetWise, customers can easily pinpoint the exact vehicle data they need and analyze it in a standardized format to gain actionable insights into the vehicle's health status and performance. And automotive companies can now use the data extracted through AWS IoT FleetWise to help improve vehicle quality, safety, and autonomy. This was originally an announcement at reInvent 2021 and the show uh, the product has gone through many iterations and lots of feedback from customers, making it a very complex, powerful IoT solution for fleet management. Uh, one of the examples we talked about was electric vehicles, so one of the big problems with those is if the battery overheats and so this fleet IoT manager will detect that it's happening and alert you to take maintenance on that vehicle before it catches on fire, which is a really great scenario. Can I try to pronounce the last name?
2: You're the only one who has a chance.
1: Yeah, I mean, it looks Greek to me, so I think I think you're probably the best shot. Mike Zama Lucas. Ah, see, so yeah, I would not have... Yeah. The, the TZ threw me off on that. I was like, wait, yeah. I don't I don't even know. Yeah. I just, you know, instead of butchering people's names, I'm just going to pass now, I think. <laughs> I feel bad every time I do that, so, yeah. But yes, this is a Greek name. You have Peter, so thank you for that. Appreciate
3: it. Hey, I joined for one reason, and one reason only tonight.
1: <laughs> I'm sure Mike appreciates that. <laughs> It's interesting to me that the fleet management is such a specialized need in IoT, though they need a whole service for it. I sort of would think it would just be a standardized IoT thing, but uh, it is interesting that they think this is a vertical that needs a specialized solution. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing because the regular
0: IoT service has the device mirror and and, and models and things. It looks very similar. I guess they've optimized it for the the near real-time. Uh, thing which makes me think it's not just for collecting metrics on batteries, uh you know, temperatures and other things. It's obviously a two-way uh, two-way communication is important. So um, perhaps this
2: is leading into uh, uh cloud-assisted self-driving vehicles. I mean I I think this is sort of the same problem as managing hundreds of thousands of servers at scale. It's just that you know with IoT you're you're much like much more likely to to hit that edge case. Right. Just do the the nature of IOT, you're going to have a, a lot of these little devices and it's hard to keep track. And I, that must be a big problem. And so like, you know, seeing advances with, you know, server, you know, monitoring for, as far as, you know, what's installed and inventory. And it seems like a natural progression to sort of extend that. So it makes sense. Yeah.
3: And it, it really fits well in, in Justin and your uh, prediction of continued increase in vertically-focused cloud services.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're seeing it everywhere. I mean, every cloud now has pretty strong verticalization. You're seeing it in SaaS. You're seeing it all across the, the, you know, every company is doing a verticalization strategy. It just makes sense. Yeah, it's interesting because, like, you know, Bridgestone's one of the quotes they have in the press release as well. And they're talking about you know using the data to help track uh, improvements to tire data and how they can make better tires in the future. And so there's all kinds of use cases for these things uh, that are sort of outside of just even you know engine telemetry uh, that can get added into it. And then they even have the ability to visualize the vehicle data uh, through you know, AR technology as well, which is sort of interesting too with a simulator. Oh, wow. So. Yeah, I guess
0: when we think of fleets, we're not just thinking about you know, the Teslas of the world or the car manufacturers, but people who run their own fleets. You know, logistics companies,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Amazon even with their with their uh, massive delivery uh, infrastructure, those are all fleets as well. So I, c- I can see that fleet management and monitoring is um, it's, it's probably got a much bigger customer base than we give it credit for right now.
1: Probably again, this is this my limitation of IoT technology to you know. The appliances in my house that are apply, you know, controlled by a, a mobile device. And you know, as as cool as turning your oven on is from your phone, you don't do it very often. <laughs> but you can do it. And it, it does report back to GE, you know, when it needs things. So that's kind of nice. But uh yeah, it's a little interesting.
2: Yeah, like a car, it's the entirety of itself being an IoT device, right? Or so, you know, like you're like the Bridgestone example. I'm like, why would the tires connect to the internet? I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> like, of course the car is. It's like, that's an element and a metric point that, to be gathered about that IoT device. So it makes a lot more sense when you think about
1: it that way. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, uh, AWS is changing an aspect of how trust policy evaluations behave when a role assumes itself. Uh, previously, roles implicitly trusted themselves from a role trust policy perspective if they had identity-based permissions to assume themselves. Uh, apparently, after receiving lots of feedback from customers on the topic, AWS is changing a role assumption behavior to always require a self-frenchable role trust policy grant. And uh, they apparently only impacts a very small number of roles. Uh, About uh, one billionth of all roles are involved. If you are one of these customers, you're being notified by AWS and you'll be able to continue to use the old broken behavior until February 2023. And I'm going to turn it over to our IIM expert, Jonathan, who's going to expand on what exactly they're doing and why. Also known as the short straw.
0: <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks for all the notice you gave me to uh, to research the story.
1: <laughs> hey, that was like six hours ago. That's plenty of notice. <laughs>
0: yeah. So, I mean, there's two parts to there's two parts to the to the roles: the, the policy itself, and then there's the the identity piece. And I, I think really what they're addressing here is that if if the role policy had given the role permission to assume a role somewhere else, but without having the condition which people rarely put in because you always need the, that, the, uh, the principle defined in the other role. So if you're going to assume, role A is going to assume role B, role B needs to list role A as a principle that can assume it. So often people will have a, uh, an assume role permission in a policy, um, but it unintentionally means that if, you, if, you, if you're running as role A, running as something as role A and you have credentials for role A, you can reassume the same role and that doesn't sound like it will be a big deal. Well, what's the big deal if you can reassume the same role you already have? However, assume role has a very important uh, feature, which is around scope limitation. So you can, when you assume a role, you can pass a, a more restrictive policy to IAM, and the credentials you get back now don't have permission to do the other things in the uh, in the policy. So think about services like um, internet-connected services. I'm gonna pick a pick iRobot. I don't know that iRobots that this is the case for iRobot, but their vacuum cleaners most likely have some temporary temporarily issue credentials um, to perform, you know, to to send information to IoT service or to somewhere else in the AWS cloud. Imagine the situation where the credentials the credentials you get are scoped down using assume role. Uh, you could technically then if if if, uh, if there's no deny in place in that in that policy. Uh, you, that, that scope down role could actually reassume itself to gain full permissions of the policy. So I, that's, that's what I six I was figuring out is actually why, why this is a big issue. And I think it's, it's um, a sort of permissions escalation problem. And that's not how they approached it in the press release, but it was published by the CISO or well, the director of the CISO's office the senior engineer, uh, you know, it didn't come from the IM team. So I think this is addressing probably something we'll we'll see um in the media soonish, a vulnerability that was exposed.
2: Interesting. Because I took that as a whole different I, I I looked at this as a way to more clearly report on access and boundaries of those access. And so one of the, any kind of explicit or inexplicit definition is harder to track when you are doing, especially the way, you know, Amazon does it mathematically when you're trying to evaluate the, the amount of access that a role can give you. And so it's, it's really hard to, to assign that a value when it's, you know, you are trying you know, outside of it's outside of the trust policy effectively, because you're, you're once you've allowed it to call STS, you've allowed it to call itself. So I figured this was a way just to make that sort of very distinct so that you can report on it and, have those boundaries be very clearly demonstrated? That yeah, they, is interesting. They, they touched on that in the post, talking about how,
0: how you, you would have to check two places to, to find out whether the role could assume itself, and and that's true. And I do like the explicit declaration being being a requirement, and it should probably always have been a requirement. Yeah, but it's it's always been strange with IAM though, because once you create a principle like an IAM user, even if it's called Bob. If you attach Bob to to a, to a permission somewhere, and then you delete the user and recreate the user again, still called Bob, that's still a different principle. So, in the case of things like IAM users, the system knows whether or not that user is, is the same user it was when you gave it permissions in the first place. But in the case of a role, it doesn't because it doesn't really have an identity until until it's assumed. It's also it's also weird, kind of having
1: a self-reference. I mean, it's a principle.
2: It's still a principle, and it's calling that assume role on itself.
1: I mean, I I resonated with the part in the article where they said, you know, this is just a simplicity thing because uh, it was confusing that you know you'd have to explicitly set it for these users, but then for this implicit in you know granting, you didn't have to do that. And uh, they said uh, increases the simplicity, so it's what you see is in the trust policy is what you get. And I was like, I resonate with that because I'm all about keeping it simple. And so I I took that at face value, is like, yeah, it makes sense because it was confusing before because now I had to think about multiple ways. I like the reporting idea that Ryan has on it. Um, Overall, I think it's you know I I think it's much I think the way they implemented assume role was actually really haphazard initially, and the whole concept of that was kind of like you need to do this right away because it's really important, (laughs) and they did it and then there was like these edge cases and that's one of those edge cases that just sort of finally bit them that they had to fix Uh, because there's a lot of challenges with assume role and how you did assume role permissioning, and I think this just makes it that much cleaner in the future, which I appreciate.
3: It feels more verbose and more explicit, but I don't understand how you can escalate permissions assuming your own role, assuming yourself.
0: When you assume a role, you can either assume the whole role. Sounds like sushi. I'm hungry for sushi
1: How
0: do <laughs> <laughs> <When> you make <assume laughs> a sushi metaphor? <laughs> yeah. When you assume a role, you can winner. assume, you can, you can assume the role <laughs> as it is in the policy and you get every permission in the policy or you can pass along a smaller scope and you and the the, the policy the permissions actually, boundary right yeah a, oh, so that, so I that, see
3: what you're saying and then yeah, assume so yourself and get the full the full role
0: yeah because if it wasn't the bound, if, it was, if it wasn't dis, if it wasn't ex- explicitly denied then you could yeah. still assume that role even though it wasn't listed as a permission yeah yeah, yeah.
1: Well also is this is this helping like a separation of duty scenario where like I want a security person to be able to create a role, but I don't want that same security person to be able to assume that role to take an action because they're not authorized to do that. Um, and so before, implicitly, they got permission to assume their own role, and they then could elevate their permission because they wrote the role the policy. Um, you know, is this sort of a separation of duties type thing too, where someone else is writing the policies, uh, and you want to make them available for other things to assume, but you don't want to you know have them have that permission necessarily.
3: This is why I'm glad I'm not a cloud creator. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is. I don't want to this... think this hard.
2: <laughs> Permissions get, you know, messy fast, right? Oh, and every yeah. single way that, you know, we've tried always has some sort of either an edge case where you can't apply the most secure method and you need static keys, or, you, you know, you're trying to make at least privilege, but there's still this edge case of pass roll where you can allow you know, privilege escalation that way, or, you know, this is a new one, which I didn't even know because this isn't a pattern that I use a lot where I use self-referential calling of roles, mostly because I try to make things simple for myself just trying to debug these things. Um, <laughs> but I can see now like where, you know, a secure access pattern was developed somewhere where someone does call a role with those those permissions boundary as a way to basically allow um, a dev team or or something easier access to, to manage those permissions because they can call a role that has more scope, but with this permission boundary, which was the intent. So it's yeah. I was thinking about something like you know Terraform Cloud type type
0: thing where the or Terraform Enterprise, where you give the instance itself permission to do, have to perform actions all over the place. But by the time you you're running in a job in a workspace, you want you want that scope down to just a specific account or just a specific set of resources. And it may be that um, yeah, you know, i gonna I'm gonna put some money down and say that. This time around, AWS got their press release out first, addressing a security incident, and that somebody else somebody else is going to publish soon.
1: <laughs> I'll keep an eye on the whiz blog.
2: yeah <laughs> this, this is, feels a little tinfoil hat, but maybe
1: yeah I'll tell you what. I would argue with Jonathan, but
3: I will never bet against him. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, Someone who's who's uh, been drinking with Jonathan before knows not uh, you know not to go that far. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, t- you know, since granularity, of course, is a big theme of all of this, uh, Amazon's also giving you new granular access to DNS records. Uh, and to prove it, uh, this week they're adding the fine grained access permissions to individual DNS records or groups of records within a Route 53 private or public zone. Previously, you could only restrict it at the hosted zone level, which provided authorized users with access to all of the records. Uh, you know, In a prior life, we did a pretty involved delegation process where we actually delegated subdomains into different account structures uh, because what didn't really exist. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I can see this being a nice alternative to that solution where we just say, look, these ones that have this particular tag or this particular set of uh, DNS records you have control over to update uh, and then you can do that nice assume role process we just talked about to assume that role in my account and make that change to DNS. Uh, so this is uh, a benefit that I could have had about five years ago. Uh, yeah. It was really great. But uh, you know, no, I'm glad to see it here finally because this is always one of those weird ones. Like, why is this hosted zone the only access level I can restrict at?
2: Yeah, no, I, I had the exact same thought working on that same project. It was like, oh, how nice this would have been to manage this this way instead of having hundreds of zones delegated out of a master zone in order to to create that delegation boundary. Um, this is a nice a nice add, you know, especially when you think about you know you. Know, vanity or top level domains that maybe be, you know, for the service ingress, um, all kinds of things that you can restrict down to, to either other accounts or, or specific elements within your account This is a fantastic ad.
3: Yeah, totally.
0: Yeah. Especially if you use the resource access manager to share those resources between multiple accounts or, or whole org. this is, this is a must have.
1: Mm-hmm. I've it took so long to be honest. <laughs> uh, I didn't make sure I make a feature request of this, but we could have. I guess I, just, I never thought of. I never thought to make a feature request of it. I, we, we, we we made a feature in. request. Oh, okay, Jonathan did. Of okay. course, <laughs> of course, Jonathan did. Uh, all right. Well, AWS is announcing the public preview of Data Sync Discovery. You can use Data Sync Discovery to gain visibility into your on-premise storage performance and utilization, and receive automated recommendations to help simplify and accelerate your data migration to AWS. The new feature of AWS Data Sync enables you to better understand on-premises storage using thorough automated data collection analysis, quickly identified data to migrate, and evaluate recommended AWS storage services for your data, including the many flavors of FSX or EFS to meet your workload needs.
3: We recommend you move all of it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> the most expensive one, yeah. EFS. Oh, sorry, that's the wrong one.
2: So, I mean, you know, Amazon is going their, their way out of automating me out of a job, which is fantastic. I've spent the better part of a year in two separate companies, Doing analysis on storage data and doing cost metrics on whether, you know, moving to Glacier was going to be cost effective based on access patterns and all those things. And this is incredibly hard to do if you have huge data sets, you know, petabytes scale um, and, you know, billions of objects. So, so it's a nightmare task. And so I love that they're automating that away. And then hopefully, you know, it's not just get it all into S3 and then hopefully move it to the right storage layer from there. But this is recommending against you know different storage options, and hopefully one day it'll also be different you know
1: classes of storage within those options. Pretty cool. Yeah, it is always, a, you get early to the cloud, and you're like, okay, we're gonna try to calculate out how much storage is gonna cost. And then you're like, okay, what dimensions are there? And you're like, okay, bytes transferred, IOPS, and gigabytes on disk. Okay, crap, I have one of those dimensions. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then everything else, you're like, uh, I'm gonna put my hand in the sky, how's the wind feeling? Uh, and you're always wrong. Although, in my my history with cloud, is that uh, those costs are not always uh, rounding errors comparatively to the cost of compute. But uh, <laughs> you know, they still do add up in large uh, large petabyte scale. So it does become a big factor in bigger companies.
2: It's usually one of those arguments for you know should we move this data out of our private data center? And you're like, someone told me Glacier's too expensive. And you're trying to you know be like, all right, well instead of your feeling, let's do this with science.
0: Yeah. <laughs> We're kind of heading towards a one-click migration for some of this stuff, though. You know, you deploy the software, and it, make, and it gathers data, it makes recommendations, and then the next button click is okay. Now replicate it, it, it. fully. Now just yeah. get it done.
1: I mean, honestly, if they could actually automate migrations, so I don't ever have to do one again. I would pay them all the monies. Oh yeah. Just magic, magic happened, and then I can just focus on like getting the cost back down because you know it's going to be outrageously expensive. (laughs) But then once it's there, like, well, let's work on cost management and we'll fix the cost problem, and then that's our our plan. Versus, let me coordinate migrating, you know, thousands of thousands of customers to this uh, to this need. One file system at a time.
2: Woo!
3: Just give us all the money. We'll migrate it for
2: you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Solve all problems with money. All problems are solved. Yeah. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Facts. All right, uh, CloudWatch Container Insights now provides lifecycle events for ECS. With Container Insights, you can monitor, isolate, and diagnose your containerized applications running on ECS. And now with the additional lifecycle event, you can easily correlate metrics, logs, and events in a single view for more complete operational visibility. Uh, Container environments have a short-lived resource and lifecycle event help track the state changes on these resources throughout their lifespan. By displaying lifecycle events and container insights, you can get a centralized health and performance view of your ECS container, uh, which you know i've tried to use cloudwatch containers a few times and then the bill scares me away to turn it back off cuz it's really expensive <laughs> uh but you know the fact that it didn't have the ability to tell me like oh you're you just scaled up 12 containers and that's why your latency dropped or you know things mm-hmm. changed in your metrics seemed like a big miss so glad to see this uh this now exists in the very expensive container insights product
2: yeah no i've 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 had to do this the hard way you know like trying to correlate performance uh against scaling actions and so like this is this would have been a lot easier than what Clued job I probably ended up doing. I don't even remember how I did it now. Um, so this is, you know, this is a nice ad for, because a lot of these things can vary wildly as you scale up or scale down. Um, and, and it can help you understand that maybe scaling up to hundreds of nodes um, or hundreds of containers all at once maybe isn't really the solution that you think it is, which is what it turned out to be in my case. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, we got a history as well because in the
0: console, if you're trying to look for scaling actions, the history didn't span back very far. So it's like, well, 30 days ago we had this
1: issue. What data do you have? Like none at all. Yeah. Yeah, that's going to be neat. Agreed. Well, moving on to Google and uh, Google Next, two weeks away, October 11th through the 13th. Uh, very, very short time ahead. Uh, and you have a head start now if you've signed up for the free uh, Google Next conference. The no cost learning opportunities have opened. Uh, And you can get access to the Google Clout Challenges designed for the next uh, attendees, including the new Cloudfly Cup Challenge talked about last week. Uh, Google Cloud, two cups, you know what I mean. The Google Clout Challenge is a no-cost 20-minute competition posted each Wednesday, and you can race the clock to see how fast you can complete the challenge. The faster you go, the higher your score. Uh, As well as the catalog is now fully released. There are multiple content tracks for you to check out, including build, analyze, design, modernize, operate, secure, collaborate, and innovate. As all of your tracks, uh, as well as the Google curated playlists have also now all been published, and I had to take a quick peek through the catalog, and I saw some interesting ones here. Uh, bring cloud-native security capabilities to everywhere you operate is one of the playlists. Uh, invest in you, get Google Cloud certified is another one, and under the hood for technology leaders were all some of the ones that I checked out uh, to see what was included inside of those. They all look pretty good. Uh, you can I'm sure you can find one that meets your needs and wants and desires for your Google Cloud Next experience coming up in two weeks.
2: Yeah, as a wannabe security engineer, I already earmarked the the cloud-native security capabilities just because I think that that's still a great thing that, you know, moving to a, a cloud um, can provide, um, where in the data center, it's, it's a lot harder to put the ecosystem tools together to do the same thing, um, and especially as embedded deeply into the code as, as you can with a lot of these things. So that's fantastic.
3: I can't wait for more companies to use Google Cloud so we could do more projects
1: on it. I know a company. (laughs) Uh, Google Cloud is releasing a preview of Cloud Run targets and deployment verification for Cloud Deploy. Available in preview, delivery pipelines can now deploy to Cloud Run targets, enabling continuous delivery of your Cloud Run service. All the continuous delivery capabilities that Google Cloud Deploy provides for other targets are now also available for Cloud Run, including rollback, approval, audit, and delivery metrics. And with the new verification capability, a testing container can also be executed immediately when an application is deployed, allowing you to rapidly roll back your Cloud Run deployment before it breaks all of your service level agreements. That's awesome, especially the um, especially the deployment verification. Because trying to orchestrate that
0: is just so clunky. There's never been I don't think there's ever been a good tool that could do deployment, run a test, and then do a sensible rollback.
1: Yeah, I mean the the Google DevOps stuff is is up there with, uh, with Azure DevOps and some of its capabilities. And this is, you know, this is a great. I'd like to see it as well.
0: Have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS GCP Azure architect only to have them be poached at the 11th hour by a startup with a juice bar? Initiative stalled because you're having trouble hiring? Well, I have a simple solution, Foghorn Consulting. Foghorn Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. foghorn certified AWS, GCP and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code and from day one will be designing performant, optimised cloud-native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOps solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the CloudPod sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for
1: the long haul, and they bring their own juice. All right, Fitbit and Google Cloud are interesting Device Connect for Fitbit. This empowers healthcare and life sciences enterprises with accelerated analytics and insights to help people live healthier lives. Some of the new use cases for this integration will allow Google Health Cloud partners to enable pre and post surgery care and monitoring, uh, manage chronic condition management, population health research, clinical research, and health equity data uh, to make sure that health benefits are being spread out equally in a community. Uh, overall, I thought it was sort of interesting that they did not mention that Google owns Fit, but do they not? <laughs> right. <laughs> so I was like, you know, it's nice to say this and all that, but don't act like it's an, its own independent company because it's not. Uh, but overall, this is nice to see these integrations. Uh, as well as you know, quite a few pre-built connections like the data connectors, the enrollment and consent apps for web and mobile, uh, pre-built analytics dashboards for the health providers all available to you, as well as access to AI and ML models to aggregate all of this Fitbit data you're now collecting. Uh, of course, on the Google Cloud, where you'll pay them lots of money. So well done, Google. <laughs> Excellent partnership to get more money in the Google Cloud to help Peter out with his problem of more customers on GCP.
3: <laughs> that would be nice. That would be nice.
1: But this is exciting to
3: me, just the fact that When when you get to see all this abstract stuff we talk about every week, get down to actually helping people in their real lives, helping doctors keep in touch with patients, um, helping people not run into that problem where they're at home and they don't know uh, that they should go to the doctor. And so they don't. And then, you know, someone finds them after a health check from three days, not hearing from them a wellness check. It's just like this, this type of thing is how what gets me excited about a connected, world and so hopefully we see more of
0: these yeah it can be so impactful and you really don't need much data to to start modeling people's behaviors you think about just walking around and people have been counting steps for for, for decades almost with, with their watches at this point and once you understand somebody's daily pattern what time they get up and when they walk around and how much they walk around you can very easily start looking at um at patterns of sudden changes and things like that well why why did then why did they, they stopped going out for two weeks what happened?
3: And, or why have I been in between the toilet and the bathtub for three hours? <laughs> right? I'm serious. It's like, dude, this is something that you don't have to, even if you check on someone every single day who's living alone, you know, would you like to be stuck between the bathtub and the shower for a day and then you can't reach the phone when they call? And then they probably wait another day to because you're probably at the store before they
2: call to, oh, you or you drive being over stuck, to check? Not like just, you know, closed alone in the dark. Literally stuck. <laughs> no like stuck <laughs>
3: i've fallen and i can't get up
2: actually yeah. like i can think of lots of reasons why i would stay in the bed <laughs> 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 no it is a good thing and i'm glad to see more things go in this area just and it was interesting reading about because i hadn't really you know researched Fitbit bit in a while after reading this press release and so seeing them you know move into sort of like healthcare and with that the uh, you know, managing wearables and and stuff within you know clinics and hospitals and that kind of thing. Like when I think about patient care, that's fantastic too.
0: I mean, I, I guess it's the the population of technology users uh, are now aging and need you know they use the technology. I th- think if we'd given maybe our grandparents or great gra- grandparents uh, a watch to wear and told them it would measure their heartbeat and their footsteps and else, they would probably have not worn it, probably been yeah. scared of the thing.
1: But now <laughs> we're all. You, I,
0: think, I think now we're all fairly comfortable with technology maybe a little bit too comfortable sometimes <laughs> but you mentioned the I phone can't get up thing you know a lot of those medical alert um, necklaces actually uh, they're not attached to the cellular network they're attached to somebody's home phone line and so if you travel somewhere Yes yeah. It's useless. My mother-in-law has one and she bought it with her. I'm like, well, what does that connect to? Oh, I've got a box at home plugged into my phone line. I'm like, it's not going to help you from here. Yeah. But all of a sudden, <laughs> she insists on wearing it. But, yeah. all sudden, wearing it yeah. but all of a sudden, because she's used to wearing it, all of a sudden you start enabling um, sort of healthcare applications on, on mobile devices, watches. They're going to go out of business. You know, you just press the button on your watch to say that you need help. Tap tap me three times for, for help or something. Yeah,
1: just like the clapper. I, th- I think this. I think this pivot into healthcare has been sort of heavily focused on. You know, to compete with Apple, because I think that's what Apple figured out was there was really two markets for the smartwatch. One was healthcare, and the other one was fitness, uh, which is sort of adjacent to healthcare. Uh, so I think you know Fitbit had to pivot, and that's why the was when they got bought by Google was because Google needed a platform that they could innovate on. And copy features that Apple was bringing to market that were also copies from original Fitbits, but you know they have gone beyond that now with you know EKGs and uh, all kinds of things, temperature sensors now that the Fitbits had for a while. So it, it's good to see, and it's nice if it'd be nicer if it was an open ecosystem for this health data, so that you could doesn't matter if you're using an iPhone or a Fitbit. But I know that's not the way the world works in competition. But I wish it was, because <laughs> then it'd be nice to be able to just be able to feed any of this data into Google Cloud, and then do analytics on it either from a watch, from Apple or from Fitbit, or from Samsung, or somebody else.
2: Can't even get our text bubbles the same color. <laughs> <are we> gonna- <laughs> yeah.
1: I know I say it, and it's a pipe dream. That won't happen, but uh, I can dream. <laughs> so, uh, Well, it, there's a new capability for Cloud Run and Cloud Functions, which is terribly named, because it's called Startup CPU Boost, which I read as the Startup CPU Boost, which is not the case. It is Startup CPU Boost, all one word, one phrase. For cloud Run and Cloud Functions. It's a new feature allowing you to drastically reduce the cold start time of the Cloud Run and Cloud Function. And with Startup CPU Boost, more CPU is dynamically allocated to your container during startup, allowing you to start serving requests faster. In some cases, this results in a 50% reduction in startup time, and the minimum instances are a great way to avoid a cold start, but that only helps when you are not actually scaling above your minimum instances, or the startup CPU boost fixes that issue with this higher CPU need. Java applications greatly benefit from this because, of course, you're trying to instantiate the entire JVM, which is a very CPU memory intensive process. And so, by giving it a burstable CPU credit at the beginning, you can now get your Java process up and running faster, making your cold start less impactful. I totally read this as the turbo button when you could, you know, back <laughs> sort in the so you could overclock your <laughs> CPU. Yeah. <laughs> Just a terrible I mean, name because I, yeah. I I literally read it, I'm like startup who's who's the startup called CPU Boost like that's all I could think of for the first time I read it through and then I had to read it again I was like oh no that's the name of the product okay yeah thanks Google sometimes you're a little too close on the nose on the naming or what the CPU is, startup boost yeah. Makes more sense, <laughs> or just you know? Now we're—I mean, because it's not a default option, right? I assume that it's—it's a—it's a, it's a paid-for option. You have to check a box. Yeah. it's preview right now, but you check a box for your, your function, and then it enables this capability.
0: I think it'd be nice if if they—you uh, you should you should pay for a, a, a minimum amount of CPU, but if there is a spare capacity already anyway, why not just let people use it?
1: No, uh,
2: regardless, pay for it. No. Well, that month,
1: <laughs> you gotta pay for all for the it. consumption. Do you remember
2: the earnings call? <laughs> I
1: think I know they why. Get, they gotta get profitable. Yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> it's not kumbaya. come on. <laughs> I mean, it is one of those things that I think is is it's an interesting thing because I, you know, like you, in a lot of cases, you think that yeah, you if there's excess capacity, you could just utilize it, and so therefore your startup and cold starts would go down. But I guess it's a way to sort of guarantee that a little bit. And most you know initializations for for cloud run and functions you know is setting up that initial sort of container on the back end. yeah
0: I mean I guess I guess to guarantee that somebody can actually have a, a boost on their CPU at startup they have to keep that capacity unallocated to other customers and so it's going to be
2: an, uh, an extra cost regardless mm-hmm. yeah I wonder I wonder what the cost metrics like if they would bear that out like do you really see the performance gain? and the ROI on that performance gain. with like a, It'd have to be a really big workload with a lot of cold starts
1: and throttling and scaling actions. But, hmm. Well, if you're running Maven or Go containers, uh, you can now scan them for vulnerabilities. Uh, this new capability to the uh, container analysis support function of Google allows you to scan the artifacts for vulnerabilities. This capability builds on existing Linux OS-based vulnerability detection and provides customers with deeper insights into your Maven or Go-based application, uh, adjoining many of the other technologies that are supported by this particular product. It's all integrated directly into the workflow via API, and you can integrate it into PubSub. So as your containers run through this process, they can send out PubSub notifications to you saying your artifact is now ready for promotion, uh, or nope, it failed, security check, try again.
2: I wonder if this is, like,
1: decompiling the binaries when it looks at
2: vulnerabilities. Probably not. Probably that that not.
1: would be aggressive. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, I mean, that's typically why you don't see things like Java and Go included. Just, mm-hmm. You know, like, you can read POM files, like in the case of Maven, and you can, you know, you can look at dependencies and their version numbers and cross-references
1: against known dependencies, or known vulnerabilities, rather. Google Cloud is announcing three major features for the Google Firewall have graduated to general availability. Those are the Global Network Firewall Policy, the Regional Network Firewall Policy, and the IAM-governed tags. These enhancements make it easy to achieve a zero-trust network posture with a fully distributed cloud-native stateful inspection firewall service. Say that three times fast. Network Firewall Policy structures uh, around the regional and global network uh, is a follow-up to the hierarchical firewall policies they announced about a year and a half ago. These global and regional network firewall policies improve on the previous VPC firewall rule structure, and similar to the hierarchical firewall policies, the new network firewall policy structure acts as a container for firewall rules, and rules defining a network firewall policy are enforced once the policy is associated with a VPC network, enabling simultaneous batch updates to multiple rules in the same policy. The same network firewall policy can be associated with more than one VPC, and each VPC network can have only one global network firewall policy and one regional firewall policy per region associated Both global network firewall policies and regional network firewall policies support IAM-governed tags, and all cloud firewall enhancements moving forward will be delivered on the new network policy constructs. Google will still support the legacy old and busted VPC firewall rules and even support the use of new network firewall policies with the old and busted VPC firewall rules to make it confusing. However, you're encouraged to replicate your use of VPC firewall rules post-haste before Google kills it, because it'll only be a matter (laughs) of time. With the IAM-governed tags as as the third feature, Uh, Also known as resource manager tags, or just tags, an IAM-governed tag is a new type of tag resource with enhanced security properties that can be applied to various Google Cloud resources, including VM instances. The new network firewall policy structures are built to easily integrate tags as a mechanism to enable micro-segmentation. Unlike network tags, tags are strictly controlled by IAM permissions. Allowing enterprises to set up firewall controls without the risk of violation of unauthorized personnel. Using IAM permissions tags allow users to define their network firewall policies in terms of logical groupings and delegate the management of the group within their organization with fine-grained authorization controls. I think I understand what all that
2: is. Like you know, because there's been things like Calico and other things with you know like modern uh, network security for a while. But when you put all those words together in that order, I start to glaze over real fast.
1: Yeah, that's a tough, that's a tough one to digest. <laughs> if you click into the article, uh, there's a diagram for you to get it for crayons what? for you, Ryan. Yay, crayons. Yeah, so there's a, there's a lovely diagram that shows you the overlay of the hierarchical firewall policies at the organization folder and project level, and then uh, basically shows you how it policy processes through those. So it helps you, help you get through that problem. Uh, they also mentioned here, I forgot to put it in my notes, but uh, IPv6 support uh, and custom refresh cycles have come to Firewall Insights as well in this announcement. So there you go. That's the, that's the and more part. <laughs> 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 I mean, I think anytime you simplify and more complicate your network at the same time, I think it's always a good win. So I appreciate the simplification and the overcomplication uh, in one announcement.
3: I do like the concept of hierarchical firewall rule sets, though.
1: I do too. I think it makes sense. And it's it's sort of what we've, you know, grouping logical resources together and then giving them a, a set of policies that you can then manage at a global to local level always makes sense uh, in how you structure like Palo Alto firewall rules, et cetera. So it makes sense that it would live in a cloud world too, um, even if you don't have, you know, that network segmentation at a physical layer. You're still virtually segmented in that way. Yeah.
2: But this removes the the primary key of an IP address as an identifying feature. And that's really, you know, and and especially as we move to IPv6, we're going to have to do, just because those things aren't going to be relevant to us humans.
3: Can we just call them MAC addresses?
2: (laughs) No, because there
1: is a MAC address. (laughs) There's still a MAC address, yeah.
3: (laughs) I know, but come on, it looks so much like a MAC address. I can't Uh take it.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Oh, uh, our last Google announcement. Google is releasing Log Analytics, a new set of features in cloud logging available in Preview, powered by BigQuery, that allows you to gain even more insights and value from your logs. Log Analytics brings entirely new capabilities to search, aggregate, or transform logs at query time directly into cloud logging with a new user experience that optimizes for analyzing log data through the power of BigQuery. And I'm just glad it's not Elasticsearch, search. So I'll take <laughs> there it. There you
2: go. <laughs> yeah, this is, I'm still too a little shell-shocked, I think, from from my last job on, you know, for logging, but a lot of these things are, yeah, just analytics on a whole lot of noise that are outputted by various things. So hopefully it will, you know, empower certain teams to, to be able to take this data and, and really understand the value that's in those logs or the value that's not in those logs in some cases and make decisions on that.
3: Is this the first time Google's put BigQuery behind logs?
1: Well, so they, th- this announcement includes a, a special UI to help make it easier to query those logs. Um, so you could always do it, but there just wasn't a lot of... You, know, you had to do it on spread. your own, though. You had to kind of do it on your own, yeah. So this yeah. is giving you more yeah. of a, a quick start to get you there so you don't have to do quite as much heavy lifting. Get rid of that toil.
3: This, one, this is like the one announcement this week that makes me want to assign an engineer to go play with this in a sandbox for a week and figure out how potentially great it is. Because BigQuery is so powerful. And log analytics are always such a pain point when you get to scale. So I don't know. It sounds like it's got a lot of promise.
1: Yeah. I mean, even some of the screenshots look pretty, pretty sexy. Yeah. Well, uh, that is it for Google. I mean, that's just the announcements they're making now, two weeks before uh, next. And some of these are pretty cool. So, you know, if they're clearing the decks of things like Fitbit off their docket, which would be a big, you know, marquee name to put on stage, you have to wonder what they're going to have in the keynote. Um, Time will tell. Time will tell. We'll find out soon enough. Maybe we should hold
0: off on that new relic decision.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: We definitely should.
1: All right, let's move on to Redmond and Azure. Uh, well, one of the fun things that you learn about Azure if you use it often is that they deprecate a lot of third-party controls and things. So if it's Microsoft, they'll give you extended support forever. But if you want to use Postgres, you know what, they deprecate that. So uh, you now, uh, if you're using Postgres 11, which is not that old, <laughs> not that old, folks, uh, you have until November 9th, 2023 to get off of Postgres 11 because Azure is no longer going to support it. And you must move to at least uh, Postgres version 13 uh, or higher, which I think is also Postgres 14 at this point. Uh, in the kindness of their hearts, they give you that one year to make the change, which I'm sure all of your QA regression and QA testing people will love, uh, and so get to work. You're welcome. Thanks, Microsoft.
3: It's a year. If you have nothing else to do, then perfect.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you're not using anything crazy, I would assume moving from Postgres 11 to Postgres 13 should be a pretty trivial upgrade. Just
3: click the but, upgrade button right there, right but, now. Just uh-huh. go click it. It'll
1: be fine. Yeah. But do you want to do that and then break production? Nine <laughs> times out of ten, it works just fine. Yeah, yeah it'll be fine. No, it'll be fine it's a one out of 10 though, when you're around a massive ad and you can't roll back to 11 where you're like, everyone hates me because I push the buttons I'm being so, facetious. Yeah. Well,
2: I mean, it is one of those things where are, you know, like it should be that easy. You should try, it. you should roll for it. And then you should have a, a good testing where, you know, and oh performance evaluation before you Dude. roll that into production. Cause that's always
3: database upgrades are the worst. Mm-hmm.
2: Although last, last time. So my last major upgrade that was with Postgres was from nine to 12, all in one shot. And, uh, um, and I was expecting disaster. And it actually was just click the button, it'll be fine. So, and, you know, it's not the most sophisticated use case,
1: but. Yeah. I was gonna say, I don't think you're using probably really advanced Postgres features because that doesn't seem like a Ryan thing to do. No. But, no. Uh, yeah. I, I, using a relational database as a key value store, like usual. Yeah, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> well, after Google killed their IoT solution about a month ago, Azure is here to talk to you about their IoT is include future ready. Microsoft wants you to know that they continue to invest in a lot in IoT and the future needs of the technology across multiple industry segments. And they point out the 7,000 OEM builds of Windows IoT devices, the comprehensive cloud to edge security, hybrid environment maximization, and an end to end product portfolio. Uh, and, you know, yeah, if you want IoT, which I don't care anything about, uh, for manufacturing, energy, consumer goods, transportation, healthcare, or retail, uh, Microsoft has your back. So go check them out.
2: Yeah, it is interesting. You know, the, the, uh, both Amazon and uh, Azure are sticking, you know, to the IoT and making sure that their the service offering includes it in a big way. Both investing in it.
1: Yep. Or Google's like nope, Google. We're like, Nuh-uh. nope, sorry, not our business. We're out. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. That's it for Azure. They're not. They're not talking a lot these days. Nothing. A lot of deprecations this week though. That was. There's more. There's more hidden in the lightning round for Peter to walk us through. But uh, you know, it's all good. And that is a good segue to Peter for the lightning round.
3: All right. Well, you know how much I love going to the data center and swapping disks. So let's start with Azure. Unmanaged disks will be retired on September 30th, 2025.
1: I mean, technically in the cloud, all my disks are unmanaged by me. So I guess I'm not happy about this because now I have to manage my disks. I don't want to do that.
2: Well, like any tree in the forest, if they're unmanaged, how do you know if they're retired? That's right. Yes.
0: Well, what do you I mean by retired, anyway? I think I'm taking take my back
2: and
0: put a, a bullet through or something.
1: <laughs> yes. A uh, big shredder. It's an industrial size. I just throw yeah. them in.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. A degasser machine. <sighs> that gives me nightmares. Oh, yeah. Uh,
3: well, the continuous delivery setting of Azure VMs will be retired on March 31st, 2023. Instead, use
1: Azure DevOps
3: to create pipelines.
1: I mean, You know what would be really nice? a button that just made this happen, so I don't have to do this work. Thanks, Microsoft. Appreciate it. Screw you. (laughs) Uh,
3: We've got deployment center setting of Azure Kubernetes service will be retired on March 31st, 2023. Again, let's go ahead and plan on using automated deployments to create pipelines.
1: I mean, again, because these are... uh, both pipeline related. Clearly, uh the legacy pipeline team lost a battle and GitHub is taking over the world. And this is the last bastion of like we're letting those people go and we need to get rid of this product. <laughs> bye bye.
2: Bye bye. Yeah, both both of these are, you know, services that I just haven't seen wildly adopted. Especially, you know, in the 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 small amount of Azure workloads I know about. You know, these settings were there, but largely, you know, being used for Azure, you know, managing servers that never scale up or down. So and I didn't know I don't even know about this Kubernetes data center
1: deployment center setting. I don't know what that is. Time to move on for those people. Time to move Not on. Not time to learn it, that's for sure. Don't learn it now. It's too late. Yep. Not gonna. Didn't even click it.
3: Uh, announcing availability of AWS outposts rack in Kazakhstan and Serbia.
1: Oh, DevOps Borat sounds very, very nice. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Damn
1: it! <laughs> <laughs> Got to be quicker on the draw, Jonathan. Quicker on the draw.
3: <laughs> okay, go, moving on. Amazon Kendra releases Dropbox connector.
1: You'll be even more cool as if it then told you how much money you would save by moving from Dropbox to the WorkDocs product. Oh, they killed that. Never mind. Sorry. Oh
2: okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, not even Amazon search product is going to help me understand all the stuff I have in Dropbox. Oh, yeah, I know. My Dropbox is a mess.
3: Uh, AWS cost categories now supports retroactive rules application.
1: Which I just love for the future argument I'm going to have with somebody like, well, my thing, why would it go from zero to $45,000 this week? Like, this is ridiculous. You guys have something something clearly something wrong. I'm like, no, no, no. We just weren't tagging you properly, and now I can prove it by retroactively tagging all your data into past, uh, which I look forward to. Do
3: you think uh, like different groups will figure out how to retroactively re-tag their own resources to a different departments when they go over budget?
2: <laughs> if, if I can find someone putting that much thought into their cost visualization, I will pay them for, for that effort. <laughs> Or even just
0: tagging things, honestly. <laughs>
2: let's, just stop
0: with ta- let's just stop with tagging things in the first hey, right.
1: Yeah, can they just tag it? I don't care if they tag it to the wrong cost center. I just want it yeah. tagged, and then you know, we can we can deal with that later. Uh,
3: pass the trash is what I'm thinking.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's actually a brilliant plan. That's how I can save a lot of money if I could just pass it to, to IT. Hmm.
2: I mean, Jonathan's the owner of all the stuff that's running in my personal Amazon account, just in case. <laughs> Makes perfect sense.
3: Maybe copilot a CLI for the containerized apps, adds IAM permission boundaries and
1: more. I mean, your copilot should have some permissions, but not all the permissions, so I guess this makes sense. It's
2: just, you know, like I, I want to like copilot and this ecosystem of you know developer friendly um, launching tools, but it's just like <laughs> it's just I'm looking at like from a from a platform. Or service provider, and like this is such a nightmare. <laughs> like, I get why this is needs to be a thing, because it's individual users deploying into environments. And so you want
1: the permissions boundaries so that it, to limit those things. But eek. the uh, the end more on this was TLS termination. So I see why that didn't make the headline.
3: Just, just, just curious. That concludes the lightning round. And I really want to encourage more. Borat impersonations so I'm going to
1: justice. Oh, Excellent. Yes. I'll have to watch that movie again. I need more, re- more reference material. It's been a while. I haven't seen the What sequel. was
2: better was Jonathan's face. He was so close to getting it He was it out so, right close. so close. So close. I know. <laughs>
1: Uh, Well, we already talked about uh, Google Cloud Next coming up just a few weeks away. Uh, Oracle Cloud World is the week after that for all of you OCI fans. And then the DevOps Enterprise Summit is also the week with Oracle Cloud talking about all things uh, DevOps and the world. Uh, I do think I mentioned last week that they have a new book out, Investments Unlimited, uh, which is a follow-up to the Phoenix Project, which had a follow-up called the Uniform Project, and now Investments Unlimited, uh, which is from the GRC perspective. So if you've been arguing with your GRC team about... um, you know how to implement separation of duties in a DevOps pipeline and you didn't know how to do it, this book will help you, which is great. And it's a, it's a battle that I've had and won and lost uh, in different battles, but uh, ultimately, this is the way of the future. And so if you want some guidance uh, and you haven't heard all the things I just mentioned already, this book is a good starting place for you. Uh, if you have heard all those things, it might be a little bit redundant, but still a good story. And maybe you can give it, gift it to your GRC, head of GRC for Christmas. I'm not, I'm not sponsoring us. I just love their stuff because it's great. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> so, yeah, there you go. Yeah, I like it. Uh, and then KubeCon is uh, October 24th, 28th to find out all the things they're going to do to Kubernetes to make our life hopefully easier and not more complicated. Although that has not been the track record of KubeCon for the last <laughs> five years.
3: More <laughs> complicated, <laughs> more
1: fun. <laughs> more complicated, more fun. All the good things. And that is it for the uh, things coming up, guys. I think that's uh, everything for this week. We'll see you. Well, you won't see me, but you'll see the rest of you uh, next week. Absolutely, Maybe. you will. Be the best show ever. Twenty percent chance. Yes. Right to the <laughs> right to the after show. They're not even going to. They're not even going to touch the news. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. All right, see so you guys. Uh, after after Nick will next. Good night. Right. Bye everybody. See you. And that is the weekend cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and tweet us your feedback at hashtag the cloud pod or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions.